Welcome to the Sustainability and You podcast, a series of interviews focusing on facts shared by passionate advocates who are part of the movement towards net zero. I'm Josephine Bush, and I'm the founder of the Sustainability and You platform. And I'm Tilly Wickens, the leader of our Young Ambassadors Council. In this podcast series, our aim is to raise awareness, encourage collaboration, and join the dots between disciplines that will influence policy and decision-making as we move to net zero. We are aiming to bridge the gap between silos and generations, strengthening the lines of communication with a small, influential community of people who care and are passionate about how we create change. Today's guest on Sustainability in You is Jojo Mehta. Jojo co-founded Stop Ecoside in 2017 alongside barrister and legal pioneer, the late Polly Higgins, to support the establishment of Ecoside as a crime at the International Criminal Court. As key spokesman and executive director of Stop Ecoside International, Jojo has overseen the remarkable growth of the movement while coordinating between legal developments, diplomatic traction and public narrative. She is the chair of the charitable Stop Ecoside Foundation and convener of the independent expert panel for the legal definition of ecocide. Luckily for us, the definition of ecocide was issued only this month. So we had the privilege of catching up with Jojo to discuss that definition and what it means for the finance community. So welcome Jojo to the Sustainability and You podcast. I am absolutely delighted to have this opportunity to speak to you today in this auspicious month for Ecoside, given the release of the definition. But before we get into the detail of the definition of Ecoside, I'd love to hear from you about Ecoside itself, what gave rise to it coming into being, and your role with Ecoside. So welcome, Jojo. Thank you so much. It's a real pleasure to be with you. So I co-founded the public campaign, which is actually Stop Ecoside, not just Ecoside on its own. Stop Ecoside. I co-founded this with Polly Higgins, the uh, UK uh, legal pioneer, who is sadly no longer with us, and who dedicated the last 10 years of her life to this initiative, to criminalising mass damage and destruction of nature, in other words, Ecoside, at the top level, at the International Criminal Court. Now, I worked with her for the last four and a half years of her life, and we co-founded this public campaign in 2017. We believed at the time to crowdfund for the diplomatic work, which was already in progress. Um, We were already working with small island states around strategic support um, to have their voice heard at the International Criminal Court um, and to begin moving this forward. What we realised over time and what we've been realising in the last couple of years uh, since Polly departed and since this movement has also been growing hugely is that it was much more than crowdfunding for diplomatic work. What we've realised is that where we have campaigns, which we do now in 15 odd countries or associate groups, is that 
those conversations that are happening at grassroots level in all kinds of sectors and all walks of life in those cultures, in those countries, are also pushing the political dial in those countries. So we're seeing that there's a very concrete relation between the conversation on the ground and the momentum at the political level. So that's been hugely exciting and encouraging to see. So that's some of the background then to the evolution of EcoCERD. And as you say, uh, there's a huge amount of political impetus, corporate impetus and individual engagement with this sort of subject matter. Um, it's very of the moment. You know, we're in the year of COP26. Um, obviously, the, the, the UK is hosting. So it's right on the cusp, really, of you know, public and, and individual consciousness. Tell us then about the definition that has been devised by an international independent expert panel that was only released in this month. So perhaps you could tell us about the definition and walk us through it and some of its key terms. I'd love to do that. And just to say that this is a huge milestone in that the, you know, the conversation around ecocide has been growing so much over the last few years, but we were always asked, what exactly do you mean by that? And although there have been working definitions in the past, this legal definition that's just emerged was put together by a panel of top international criminal and environmental lawyers from around the world. And it was done in response to political demand. So we had at the parliamentary level in Sweden, we had a request, could we commission um, a legal definition that could seriously be considered uh, for inclusion under the list of international crimes alongside war crimes and genocide. And that enabled us to bring together this kind of top talent, if you like, to put this law together. And it's been fascinating over the last six months to hear those discussions and the toings and froings between those different lawyers who all had different backgrounds and all came from different parts of the world. And what they've come up with um, and what has sort of emerged into the world is a remarkably concise and powerful definition, which ultimately boils down to one paragraph, which is then explained in terms of the definitions of the terms. So um, the key definition of ecocide as proposed by the independent expert panel is this, and it's designed to fit into the Rome Statute, which is the governing document of the International Criminal Court. So here's the paragraph. So for the purpose of this statute, ecocide means unlawful or wanton acts committed with knowledge that there is a substantial likelihood of severe and either widespread or long-term damage to the environment being caused by those acts. Now, that is a very concise and almost deceptively simple yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> sort of definition. And what, with, with your permission, what I'd like to do is perhaps go through some of those terms and the implications of the way that that's constructed. And hopefully you'll also get a sense of the sort of intelligence of it in the sense that it is a definition that is not static and that is also I mean, it's based on strong legal precedent in, in in each kind of element of it but it's also has this it has a kind of dynamic and as I'll explain almost a kind of future-proof quality about it and also almost a certain amount of inbuilt flexibility so it's really a very clever uh, definition that they've emerged with so let me walk you through it a little bit but before you do could I just ask a quick question on why make it something that has a criminal consequence? 
it's really important that the ecocide law that we're aiming for here is a criminal law. It's not simply building on regulation. It's actually taking destruction of the environment into the criminal arena. Now, there are some environmental crimes around the world, but most of environmental law sits in the regulatory sphere, ultimately under civil law. And most cases that are brought to court around environmental damage are cases of um, negligence or those kinds of things. Um, and they involve specific breaches of regulation often. And of course, now we're also seeing a lot of climate litigation also coming into that sphere. And all of those cases are important in the sense that they obviously create a bank of evidence. They also create kind of public pressure on companies to do the right thing because they don't want to be seen, you know, to be falling foul of regulation. But and, and you know, in a few cases, they also provide, you know, compensation and so on. But what they don't do is actually change corporate practice. Because what, what happens and, you know, is, is that, you know, particularly the larger corporations will budget for those court cases. They think of that as a, a you know, there's a cost of doing business ultimately as an externality. And because there's no one personally held responsible, those who are making the decisions effectively get to sort of sit comfortably behind the corporate veil, knowing that, you know, if there's a tab to be picked up, that can be done by the company. And, you know, it, it sort of has a very minimal kind of a restraint on some of the worst, the most sort of egregious harms to nature. So moving that into the criminal sphere and saying that key decision makers are, will be personally liable for decisions that they make, for acts or, or, or failures to act, which lead to severe uh, harm to nature. And there's, and particularly given that most of the damage to the environment these days does happen in peacetime, which is not covered by current international law. And it also happens in the corporate world that often that can be sponsored or in, in, in uh, coordination with, you know, government actors as well. But a lot of, of what we would you know, potentially term ecocide is, is corporate activity. And of course, key decision makers in corporations have rather more perhaps incentive even than perhaps a war criminal or somebody committing genocide to make sure that they stay on the right side of that law, that it, they treat it as a real, a real enforceable deterrent because their reputation and hence their investor confidence, the public confidence in the company, their share price all depend on that reputation in a way that perhaps might not be true of the perpetrators of some other crimes. And so there's a way in which creating a criminal law of ecocide has the potential to act as a as a kind of a bit of a concentrator for the mind, shall we say, for mm -hmm. those who are in decision making positions and looking at particularly looking at, you know, big extractive projects, big infrastructure projects, those kinds of things. So I um, mean we talk about corporates and, and individual culpability. I'm assuming that it could equally apply to government officials. Yes, indeed. It, it, as with as with genocide, it's not yeah. the foot soldiers that we're looking at here. It mm. is the controlling minds. So, yeah. you know, whether that that whether that could be government ministers or, um, I mean, even ultimately potentially heads of state, but those in those who are making the key um, the key decisions that enable something to move forward, or potentially ignoring the key information that enables horrific things to happen. I mean, one might think perhaps of huge industrial 
accidents or other disasters that happen as a result of the neglect of safety protocols, for example. One could think of perhaps Deepwater Horizon or Fukushima as situations that might fall into that category. Sure. So no corporate veil defence and no diplomatic immunity defence here. So as you walk us through the definition, I'm sure much of our audience that are board members will be listening (laughs) very acutely to to the definition, its interpretation and and what it means for them. So please, please do take us through that, Jojo. Absolutely. So I think that the first thing to notice about this is that you've got two key thresholds that will take conduct into the criminal arena covered by this definition. So the first um, threshold is that the person, effectively the perpetrator, if you like, has, has to have knowledge of the substantial likelihood of severe and either widespread or long-term damage resulting from what they're doing. And so effectively what this does is it puts it in the realm of recklessness. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, in in the other international crimes, there's a kind of default intent level of intention and knowledge. But under certain crimes, that is is changed by the the definition of the actual crime, which is the case in genocide, where it's actually the threshold is made higher. You you have to intend to destroy a people in whole or in part. That is really, really hard to prove. Um, So that's almost kind of too high to even be usable. On the other hand, the other thing the lawyers were looking at with this is is also not making the threshold so low that it's just impractical and there'd have to be so many prosecutions that you just Mm -hmm. couldn't effectively enforce the law and it wouldn't be considered something of of an international seriousness. So this this, this first threshold is, is is about severity. Effectively, you have to know that there's the likelihood of severe and either widespread or long-term damage. And the severe is, is, is important. If it's not severe, then it isn't ecocide effectively. And the definition of severe is damage involving very serious adverse changes, disruption or harm to any element of the environment. And we'll come back to the, to the environment, but it's a very broad description, including grave impacts on human life or natural, cultural or economic resources. So that's um, a, a measure of the, you know, how severe the damage has to be in order to to sort of meet this this um, first threshold, and then it also has to be potentially widespread or long term. So one or the other. I mean, obviously, if it's both, it would clearly fall within a definition. But widespread it has been defined as damage that extends beyond a limited geographic area, crosses state boundaries or is suffered by an entire ecosystem or species, or a large number of human beings. And what you'll notice about that is there's no specific measurement in terms of, you know, when we look back at at other legal precedent, for example, the Environmental Modification Convention in the 70s talks about hundreds of kilometres, or, you know, there's, there's different potential ways of defining that. But what the panel decided was that it actually should be a contextually decided thing. And that's actually important, both from the the judicial point of view, but also from the point of view of knowing, of of kind of having this law be relevant in different contexts. Mm -hmm. Because, for example, what I mean, one of the things that was wanting to wanted to be covered by that was, let's say you have an awful pollution event that affects the population of an entire town, that may not be huge enough to cover all of that 
you know, square kilometrage, if you like. Yeah. But at the same time, it's clearly a serious, uh, you know, a deeply serious event. Sure. So if, if we um, maybe unpick that a little bit and start with the, the, the concept of knowledge. So one has to have knowledge. Um, as a starting point. When we look at now the prevalence of scientific fact, you know, we have at our fingertips, in theory, all the knowledge we need to determine that what is happening to our environment is severe, Mm -hmm. disruptive, can create economic and other harms to ecosystems. We have the development of reporting frameworks for corporates like the TCFD, the Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosures. So we know that large corporates are engaging very actively with their own understanding of their environmental footprint. They're seeking to measure that and assess that over time. And we also know that they will continue to do what they're doing albeit many businesses may be transitioning and they're monitoring that transition. So when we look at the concept of knowledge, one could, if one's being provocative, say knowledge is there. And we could also say that many of us individually or corporately are continuing to engage and act in a way that is causing harm. How do we, how do, where do we draw the line? How do we assess what falls into the culpable pot or not culpable part. What might be helpful is if I just perhaps, because I think I probably went into a little bit too much detail on that last answer. So what I'm going to do is give a bit more of an overview so that I can link into what you're asking, because there's there's two or three different aspects in there, if you wouldn't mind. Sure. So there are two key thresholds. One is that you have to know that there is a substantial likelihood of severe and either widespread or long-term harm. And those terms are not defined by exact numbers. They're going to be contextually sensitive. The second threshold is that those acts have to be either unlawful, which is actually very easy in the sense that, and and, and it also creates a level of flexibility. And I'll come back to that in a minute. And if they're not unlawful, in other words, if they are legal activities, they have to be wanton. In other words, they have to be committed with a kind of reckless disregard for the fact that the, the effects will be just disproportionately excessive in relation to what you would want to balance them against and what that's been defined as is social and economic benefits Mm -hmm. so there there are two these two things are both reassuring from the corporate and and, and finance perspective they also really help to make the definition to keep the definition relevant over time and to allow it to mesh with existing law so by putting unlawful in there what that provides is that if your activity if the activity that you're engaged in is lawful, both under national and international law, you're already safe on one side of that particular equation. Okay, so this is not about suddenly criminalising something that has never been criminal before. Mm-hmm. And that's important because, of course, in different parts of the world, there are different, you know, national laws vary. Um, and of course, law is also always evolving. So what that does is it keeps the definition relevant, but it also means that it doesn't interfere with, directly interfere with national law in, in as, as it currently sits. 
However, the other half of that, which is the wanton, is where we really need to be looking at. Because when we're, when we're looking at, you know, activity that could be, you know, very economically beneficial for a certain number of people, and yet it's going to seriously uh, damage and destroy a certain area, whether you're talking about, say, Amazon rainforest, or, you know, potentially you could be talking about marine ecosystems in certain particularly drastic kinds of fishing, for example, where you're, there, there are whole sort of... Um, ecosystems that are literally being disturbed uh, you know and 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 you can see that the you know this is going to cover a whole ecosystem or it's going to cross a cross a national boundary you know these kinds of things and so you're looking at that balancing uh, that weighing up of you know is this clearly excessive so but i think the other thing that is really important to take into account here in looking at causation and who get, who will, will 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 cross these lines is that this crime is also framed as a crime of endangerment Mm-hmm. So it's it's not at all a strict liability crime, which is where you look at the damage and you say, this was the damage that was caused, you're the one that caused it. It's actually looking, almost you're looking in advance. So you're saying, by taking this decision, you know, even if it hasn't happened yet, public domain knowledge or, you know, effectively, or, or, or personal knowledge in your particular case, it could be, should have told you that these consequences would arise. And so it's actually the the taking of the action or the failure to act is about endangering rather than the actual damage itself. Now, this is very common in international law. It's the same thing in war crimes, you know, or in in crimes against humanity, directing an attacker to civilian population, regardless of whether civilian population is actually eliminated. Yeah. Now, so so does that mean that... that, um, on the publication of a corporate strategy which hasn't actually yet been implemented but the tenants of it would indicate that there may be harm to the environment mean that you could preemptively bring a case potentially yes but the point of this is actually it's not to i mean i think i think this we do almost take a little step back here to look at the time scale in which this is projected mm-hmm. and the intention the overall intention of putting this in place now what we realize and we all know this from investors to insurers to policymakers serious and quite drastic change is needed in our approach to how we deal with the natural world and how we extract or don't extract or you know how we go about things within the next decade if we are not to seriously put at risk human civilization as we know it you know i don't want to put this in any uncertain terms it's mm-hmm. massive and we all know it's massive mm-hmm. what this rule is intended to do what this law is intended to do is to create a new ground rule that people can see coming. This is not something that's going to come in overnight. This is not something that boards are suddenly going to find themselves incriminated by. Criminal law does not act retroactively. It will will act from when it comes into place. So the entire point, in a way, certainly from our foundation's perspective and the public campaign perspective, the entire point of this is to protect the planet to protect civilization and to do it in a way that's feasible and so the way that this is the importance here is that we aim at the international level um, (laughs) where you need the support of at least 82 currently uh, currently 82 countries because you need at least two-thirds of the members of the international criminal court and that's going to take time what is also absolutely necessary is that everybody can see this coming we want this to be approached as a compliance pathway, not as a punishment mechanism. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. You know, when people say to us, who do you want to see in the dock? We don't want to see anyone in the dock. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, realistically, of course, you know, when a crime is in place, it can, you know, it, it you know, cases can be taken. But the whole point of this is for those who are at the really at the most early end of the production chain, the insurers, the financiers to be looking in advance and saying, OK, maybe four years. I think it's unlikely to be less than four years, but let's say four to five years but within the decade, there is going to be a rule in place that, that affects all of the risk and governance frame, frameworks that we're looking at. So, I mean, in fact, I had an insurance expert talking to me a few years ago. Uh, sorry, months ago, not years ago. It was last year. Gosh, so much has happened. <laughs> and what they said is, you know, I deal with these risk and governance frameworks around climate. Mm. You know, where does ecocide fit into those frameworks? And what I said to him is that it's not... You know, I, obviously, I, I'm not an expert in risk and governance frameworks, but wherever you put murder, that's where you put ecocide. So what you're looking at is not a, a kind of risk factor that you can put along with other risk factors. It's a bottom line. So just like you can't go to a government and say, you know, I'd like to kill a few hundred people for my new investment, you know, for my new business. It's just not possible. You don't even it just literally doesn't even cross your mind. But at the moment, we don't have that same line for serious damage to nature. And let's bear in mind that we're always looking at a balance here, that there's always going to be a context. So, you know, it could be that transport links or, you know, building new housing. And and actually, there's a whole lot to be talked about there about what housing is and isn't being used currently. But, um, you know, that could have a balancing effect against where the nature is going to be destroyed for that project. On the other hand, you could have a situation, I don't know, I'm just thinking off the top of my head, I don't know, Bangladesh, you've got mangroves, ecologically absolutely essential, unbelievably important ecosystems versus shrimp farms, for example. You might have, and that might be a very different equation. You might have a situation, I'm actually in the the UK, you know, we've got HS2, for example. You know, would a, a project like that, which gives a small number of people a small economic and practical advantage versus a hundred plus ancient irreplaceable woodlands that we now know. And David Daftonborough is busy jumping up and down and telling us, you know, that these ancient irreplaceable ecosystems must be kept intact. Were that project to be on the table now, it probably wouldn't manifest either possibly at all, but certainly in the same way. You'd be looking for ways of doing that or routes of taking it that would not create that damage. So I think the point that I'm really trying to make overall is this is not about going, okay, you're the bad guy, let's put you in the dock. This is about saying, how do we collectively steer our due diligence in the right direction? At the moment, what you have is you have um, transnational corporations, you know, employing their expensive lawyers to say, how do we work around these regulations? What you actually want them to be doing is using all of that intelligence, all of that time, all of that due diligence to say, how do we approach this project in a way, not that, not to narrowly avoid being criminal, but how do we actually do it constructively? How do we do it in a way that will move in favour of how we interact with our environment? Because we know those things are possible. Indeed. So I think in reality, a lot of corporates will be unpicking this definition, uh, as you've already experienced with some of the questioning that you were talking about from the insurance industry, to assess where does it sit within my risk 
management framework? What does it mean for my processes and controls? What does it mean for my methodologies for assessing the implementation of product projects over whatever sort of time horizon? Um, and how do I continue to, to, to monitor that and ensure I've got the right intervention points and KPIs to keep on top of the living and breathing nature, as you say, of this definition, particularly since as yet, whilst it's been promoted, it's not yet formally internationally adopted. So corporates are going to have to think about the time horizon for adoption and what that means for them and and make appropriate or adapt to um, new risk management procedures that envelop it, which obviously is one of your purposes, (laughs) as as you're saying, because, you know, the, the bottom line of the criminal sanction probably for a lot of people feels quite frightening. Mm hmm. Um, it goes beyond the normal corporate language um, for, for for environmental harm. Absolutely. What we're looking at here is a reality check. It really is a reality check. Yeah. And it's and it's a way of signaling that we're having to adjust our, you know, the corporate thinking and the, you know, the, the risk management thinking because we're actually dealing with a hard stop. And what, what this law will do is potentially bring in that hard stop within law as a and, and it needs to be treated as a safety parameter. This is a guardrail. This is not a kind of you know wagging finger. This is a guardrail. You know because the, the the part of the problem with the way that you know we've been sort of engaging with with nature is is a very I mean to go to the really biggest picture here. It's a mindset issue. You know it's it's a fact that you know decades and I I would go back and say centuries of Western thinking have led us to this particular way of interacting with nature and of treating nature as a resource bank and so on. We already know that there are methods and um, approaches that are already in existence and that could be properly supported, which would actually transition us towards a stable, maybe even a thriving relationship with nature. You know, whether that's regenerative agriculture, whether that's renewable energy, whether that's circular economy in both the kind of, you know, in the in in the kind of cradle to cradle sense of looking really at the design of how we do things, you know, all of that, all of those possibilities are there. They already exist. But right now, they're not as supported by policy or by finance as they need to be mm-hmm. to take us, you know, to avoid that cliff edge that we're heading towards. So, you know, to 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 try to think around how do we continue business as usual by doing as as little damage as possible is actually it's still in the realm of flat earth thinking because we cannot extract ad infinitum from a finite resource. It is just not possible. And it's kind of ironic in a way that people like Pope Francis, who are advocating this, 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 this law, indigenous leaders who are advocating this law, you know, they're the spiritual leaders, um, and yet they're advocating for something that directly meshes with the factual reality that is heading towards us like a juggernaut. Whereas the politicians and economists who supposedly act on this secular fact-based, you know, way of looking at the world are actually 
acting in a space that is rapidly becoming obsolete. So this is going to be about getting ahead of the game. It's going to be about changing thinking in order to move towards a different approach. And it's, so it's, it, it is, as, as you say, Josephine, it's absolutely about adapting those frameworks to a very different future. So this, the way that, that um, we would like to see this law responded to is as almost a kind of health and safety law for the planet. You know, this is about the safety parameters and how do we, you know, uh, relate to those safety parameters. And just in the same way as an, you know, an industrial manufacturer is going to be looking at the latest regulations for how to prevent people from falling off gantries and smashing their heads open. That is the equivalent of what we're doing at a planetary level. So, and, and, and so a lot of this is, is actually about creativity. It's about creative thinking. It's about innovation. And it's about doing that. It's about having the right parameters to do that. Now, I, I often use this, this um, sort of analogy of a, a cookery program, which I'm sure you've all seen, which is certainly if you're in the UK, which is um, a program called Ready, Steady, Cook that was really super, super popular <laughs> over a long time. And you're given a kind of rather random bunch of ingredients and you're given a time limit and you have to create a beautiful dish in that time. That is the way that insurance, finance, business needs to be thinking about this because we've all seen in the last year over the the, the, the pandemic and responses to it we've seen how fast and how creatively people can respond to parameters that come into place fast now we're not even proposing that it happens anything like as quickly as the covid you know sort of measures that were taken in an emergency way we're talking a few years here but this is the opportunity not of a lifetime this is the opportunity of history this is the opportunity that this generation of financiers this generation of business leaders have the potential to completely transform the ability of our entire species to live in harmony with this planet that is not something to get your books out and start ticking boxes and going well are we going to fit into this particular risk and governance framework this is about how do we adjust our frameworks in order that our grandchildren have a planet that is livable on and business can do this faster than anyone it's the politicians that lag behind you know and we've had corporate leaders approaching us saying thank god you're doing this right now i want to do the right thing but i can't because i'm so disadvantaged because finance is like water and it flows where it's allowed to flow so you know if you can bring in the right rules and the right guidelines we can fly we can move towards these better ways of doing things bravo to that i i i wholeheartedly concur um, <laughs> And uh, and I, I'm imagining the some of our listeners wanting to ask some of the questions I'm just about to ask. So uh, bear with me. When do you think that the um, definition will come into being? So what what's your expected timeline? So um, obviously the definition is is already in being. Yeah, sorry. Adopted. Yeah, adopted. So we we estimate a timeline of around four to five years. Now the Rome mm -hmm. Statute has been uh, amended in the past. It has mm -hmm. had a, a new crime amended to it in the past, which is the crime of aggression, mm -hmm. and that came into in the, that was adopted in 2017, and it took seven plus years to to, to move that forward. We anticipate that this will be somewhat quicker for the simple reason that the climate literally and politically is such now that this is 
effectively the global threat that the world the, the, the world's community is facing and we're not quite in that space yet but it looks like we're fairly rapidly heading towards the kind of space where a government is not really going to want to say they don't want to engage with this because that's gonna, not going to look good hmm. and 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 I think the same is true actually weirdly I think the same is probably true of the corporate world in the sense that we don't get very much kind of public resistance to this narrative for the very obvious reason that the public zeitgeist is already in the space that big companies are greenwashing like their lives depend on it because their lives do depend on it because they have to at least be seen to be moving into the green space in order to maintain you know public and investor credibility and so directly resisting something like this is really not going to look great and and it's already beginning to sort of have a similar effect in the in the political world so yes we imagine say four to five years let's just say that uh, for whatever reason unfortunately you get caught foul of this particular crime what would the consequences be for an individual I think that would depend on the specific case, much as it does with any criminal law. I mean, in the sense that, you know, it's not because it's a criminal law, it doesn't act in, in, in the same way as kind of civil regulation with particular, you know, there's a certain level of a certain toxin that you could release in a certain context. It's not like that. It's much more like, I mean, to do a very simple equivalent, if someone beats you up on the street, you don't go sue them. You go to the police, you report a crime, You get they get prosecuted. And whether it's ultimately defined as grievous bodily harm, actual bodily harm, attempted murder, doesn't depend on the exact number of bruises. It depends on the context, on the intent, on the, you know, there's a whole bunch of contextual aspects that come into play. And the sentencing will respond to the particular case. So, you know, the, the the kinds of things available will be the same kinds of things that are available for other crimes, whether that's imprisonment, fines, all of those kinds of things. I mean, we would also hope that with this kind of crime, one might also look at things like restoration orders or reparations of some kind, those kinds of aspects, and that, that will emerge probably further as we go. And until cases start to be taken, it's going to be difficult to very, you know, to put an exact figure on those kinds of questions. So it will certainly um, have a financial consequence. The question is, would it have a incarceration oh, <laughs> sort yes, of consequence? Definitely. Yeah. definitely. Because yeah. what you're, the, the whole point, in a way, of putting it alongside those serious crimes, the war crimes and genocide, is precisely because what you're saying is, you know, this is a crime of most serious concern to the international community as a whole. There's, I mean, there, there's actually, I believe there was a study done, I think it was in Colorado, I must look up the details, but where a group analysed how corporate behavior changes with regulation change and how it changes when the um, changes in criminal law. And when you change regulation, you change budgeting. When you change criminal law, you change behavior. So there's a very clear difference in, in, in in how this is applied. But I think that again, this this is going to come back to if you're if you're engaging in an activity that is likely to kill people, you're going to be very careful to stay right on the right side of that because you don't want anyone to die. That is the attitude. So it's not. A, it, it, this was what I'm saying again. It's not about the niceties. It's about the basic approach. So if your basic approach involves destroying ecosystems, you're going to rethink your basic approach. 
and I think and I think it's going that that emphasis on diligence and and going the extra mile on that in order to roll back to very informed you know risk aware decision making is mm-hmm. is the crux or the impact of this and I guess coupled with the other frameworks that are coming into being around disclosure mandatory or otherwise I guess what we're seeing is a financial community response a, a legal community response together hopefully but what it was uh, individual reframing of one's relationship with with nature and sense of responsibility within that as well. I think I think we we are interestingly seeing uh, these various movements come together and pointing in the same direction at the same time. There's a lot of power behind that, isn't it? Where it's there's not a siloed approach. There's a connected approach. I think this is this is absolutely key. Definitely. I mean, it, it's interesting because one of the, there's two things I'd like to mention here. I mean, one is that a conversation, in fact, that. Uh, Polly Higgins had with one of the reinsurance companies a few years ago, it might have been Lloyd's, where they said, you know, we know, we can see that something like this is coming, we just don't know when. And of course, you know, given the seriousness of the global situation, some kind of parameter like this is going to have to come into place. So what we see ourselves as doing is simply bringing that forward and making it known and having these discussions like we're having today, so so that there's a kind of awareness of how, you know, how do we practically approach this so that there's a, you know, so that there's not a kind of, you know, shock of of something suddenly um, you know, becoming against the rules. But I think there's also an aspect where there's an approach that we tend to have, which is about risk mitigation. In a way, it's almost about, that's why I brought up the idea of the health and safety concept, because it's it's in a way, it's having us shift from a risk mitigation approach to a hazard prevention approach. And that that I think just sort of encapsulates that what feels currently in the discussion around ecocide law feels to be a bit of a kind of a, like a tender area between the two kinds of law, if you like, the yes. civil law and the criminal law. Yeah. And, and I do think that those, that those two concepts perhaps encapsulate that quite well. So it's not just about risk mitigation, it's about hazard prevention. There, that does almost automatically, it kind of creates a kind of transition conceptual space. Mm-hmm. You know, how do we kind of move that conceptually in the same way as, you know, how do we move it in the world? How do we move it with the figures on our balance sheets? How do we move it with the, the things we're prepared to underwrite? And, you know, I mean, one one area that potentially could already be being looked at and maybe is being looked at is, you know, director's liability, you know, in, in, in insurance. So, you know, if I'm going to, you know, as a director, I have to have insurance myself and you know will that insurance then start changing yeah and 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 these are the finite details that i'm sure will be uncovered as as people start to debate the definition the application of the definition how does the uh, wider finance community engage with with you uh, and the team around the practical implications of the definition and I guess, create scenarios for consideration that will help bring to life the application of it. I think this is a, fan- a fascinating area and it's one that is really very young because, as you know, the definition yes. only emerged a week ago. 
So this is something that will be developed. And in a way, you know, I mean, it's almost like this conversation is one of those early conversations that will be moving in that direction. But I think that what we also need to take this in um, parallel with, if you like, is that there is so much movement now in the financial world already. You know, people like Mark Carney, um, you know, policies like the one brought in in New Zealand around, you know, responsibility for climate impacts of investments, you know, um, that that amazing huge collective of you know many hundreds I believe you know one and a half thousand um corporations that issued their statement you know via the with the UN last year around you know how things you know the direction that things need to move in so there's a lot of shifting already happening and of course the divestment movement is just you know is is becoming really very impactful and we're seeing you know some quite sort of you know rebellious things happening like with what happened with Exxon and yes and so on and we're also seeing the awareness at the top level I mean the the example I gave to the FT last week was the chat from Siemens talking about their their commitment to the environment and the fact that you know, ultimately, they had a fiduciary duty, you know, to shareholders and so on to uphold, you know, lawful contracts and lawful agreements. And of course, that comes back to, you know, what, what is lawful and how does that, you know, evolve? So there's there's a whole interplay here around a, a kind of, you know, within a context where already the finance world is seriously seeing major change and you know really key voices are calling for it um so in a way what this additional kind of criminal law can do is actually support all of those sort of financial redirections indeed and i you know i think that you know we'll watch this space with interest as as the conversation evolves and i think that's probably a good place for us to 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 wrap up Today, but if I can summarise, um, Jojo, firstly, amazing achievement in in the issuance of the the definition. Um, as you say, it's incredibly succinct and powerful in its premise and in what it's looking to achieve its purpose. I think the finance community will have to take a very good look at this and what it means for them, most definitely in terms of its approach to diligence, its approach to risk, its assessment of value and costs of capital as uh, as allocations of capital move to the greener sector or those that are effectively transitioning. But there's no doubt that this legal initiative will support other frameworks and other initiatives that hopefully will drive, as you've been alluding to very articulately, authentic change from leaders who proactively grab this by the horn to bring about the change that we want to see. Any final words from you? I just think this is incredibly exciting. I think the next few years are going to see really, truly transformative change from you know the, the, the approaches to uh, the way we go about you know, infrastructure, the way we go about energy, all of these things. And this element of this, you know, this law of ecocide, we don't by any means see it as a silver bullet, but we do see it as a really kind of foundational missing piece that should always have been in place, you know, you campaign for human rights, at least, you know, mass, mass murder and torture is a crime. <laughs> um, you know, so it's kind of inserting that piece at, at this strategic moment that we just believe it'll be, it, it helps to create a bridge. It helps to create a kind of, you know, a direction of travel. 
And I'm just hugely excited to see how, you know, how your audience in particular is going to be fascinating to see how they all respond to this, because I do think this is absolutely a kind of, you know, it's it's a call to all of us to really um, take responsibility in our particular areas. And, you know, finance is just going to be so key in how this all pans out. And I believe that creative ways of looking at that are just going to be encouraged and sort of triggered by this law. <laughs> well, thank you, Jojo. And I look forward to the responses that we get so we can continue this discussion. But thank you for your time today. Really fascinating conversation. And I look forward to speaking again. Thank you.